Thank you, Pam. Well, we continue our series in the book of Acts, going through the major highlights of this uh, letter written to Theophilus to see how the kingdom of God is spread to the ends of the earth through the Spirit-fueled church. So, so far, if you've been tracking with us in this series, uh, everything in this story has been quite encouraging. Uh, But today we look and examine now the very first challenge, the roadblock, the early church faith. And in doing so, we will see how the church responds to persecution. Uh, But before we dive into today's text, uh, can we pray for the preaching of gospel? God, illuminate our hearts and minds to hear the word. And not just be hearers, but to believe. Not just to believe, but also to be doers of the word. Lord, we pray that we would see the church's posture towards trials and difficulties. And in this, learn to faithfully proclaim the gospel, even to those who might reject it. And may your Holy Spirit give a boldness to the church, resting on the firm foundation of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray these things. Amen. All right, so uh, when we last left the church, uh, in chapter 2, we could say that they, the church was sort of living in a honeymoon stage of the inauguration of the church. They were devoting themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. They were loving each other and giving to all who had need. They praised God, and, and the outsiders were amazed. The church was growing. Uh, but like all things that go well, opposition begins to rise against good things that are built. This is why we can't have nice things. The Apostle Peter and John begin to speak openly in the temple regarding Jesus. And in an act of compassion to a lame man who was at the temple gates, uh, Peter, instead of giving this man the alms that he thought he would receive, Peter gives this man the gospel. He gives him Jesus. And immediately, the wonder and amazement that this causes for the temple priests and religious leaders to see this man who was once lame, standing up and walking around, leads to questioning, greater scrutiny for Peter and John. Before, you see, Peter and John's movement of the church could have been seen uh, positively by the temple as, oh, this is just a community of believers doing nice things. But Peter and John's miraculous uh, sign here now only leaves the question open as to whether or not these are men sent by God or sent by the evil one. So Peter, seizing this moment outside uh, the area of the temple called Solomon's Portico, uses this moment like any great evangelist would, not to bring great fame upon himself, but great fame for Christ. And this is causes a greater stir than the miracle itself. You see, Peter and John in chapter 3 are challenging the entire framework of belief of the temple itself, the temple leaders, even the object of worship. And yet, as we see here in these 20 verses, opposition to the gospel is not a sign that the message of the gospel is not effective. To the contrary, as we look here, opposition to the gospel just might be the catalyst in which the kingdom of God spreads. And so today, we will look at the result of this animosity towards these Christians. And we'll do so through three aspects and understanding of how the kingdom of God spreads. So here's the main idea today, okay? Uh, The kingdom of God spreads through the persecuted church proclaiming Christ 
through plain Christians. All right, so this is not comedians in cars getting coffee. This is uh, the persecuted church proclaiming Christ through plain Christians. So let's look at how the kingdom of God spreads through the persecuted church. Verse 1 of our text starts us off where the conversation and debate reaches its highest point in chapters 3 and 4, where the tension is very real. Unlike the fake fights that break out on TV, on uh, manufactured debate shows on sports networks or political news, uh, where absolutely no one is interested in those debates, a, a real fight and a real debate is going on at Solomon's Portico that has high stakes. And, and when there's high stakes in a debate that's real, where the stakes are high, everyone wants to hear what's going on. And so Peter and John have begun in this chapter throwing down the gauntlet. They say that the God of Israel glorified Jesus, the one that the Israelites crucified, that they denied the holy and righteous one, that Jesus, this Jesus, raised from the dead, and that this faith in Jesus gave this lame man miraculous healing. This commotion is so loud and so prevalent that the priests, the, the captain of the temple, the religion's opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, have all now arrived to see what this commotion is about. And they don't like what they're hearing at all. You see, the Sadducees were from a religious school of thought that denied that the human body could actually resurrect. They were very strict on the law of Moses and the sacrificial system. So this idea that Peter and John are saying that Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all in sin, rendering the sacrificial law of Moses completed, and that faith in the resurrected Christ would lead to believers being resurrected from the dead, well, that would have been more than greatly annoying, as our text says here, but blasphemous. Such a crime would place Peter and John straight to jail for believing such a thing. And since it was past processing hours for prison, Peter and John had to wait until the next day, giving the prosecutors more time and to build up more ammunition. And, and they would bring out the big guns. Annas and Caiaphas, the very same people that had taken part of the arrest and condemnation of Jesus, were assigned to the case for Peter and John. So, you know, when the star prosecutor comes out in your favorite law drama, you know that there are troubles ahead for the accused. And that same force is here for Peter and John. Uh, persecution may be ominous for those who share the gospel, but we find here in this text that persecution cannot stop the spread of its message. You see Peter and John's message spread even further than it had before, reaching about 5,000 believing. In other words, persecution doesn't deter the message of Christianity. Or put it more plainly, maybe even make it more personal for you. Just because you are persecuted, you suffer because of Christianity, does not mean that the message of Christianity is not effective. In fact, it's more likely that because we, the church, are persecuted, that Christianity advances in a way and more powerful than it could have ever been when you're not. Uh, this is a hard perspective for us as Americans because we enjoy a freedom of religion in this context that would make other Christians around the world look at us and cringe. Uh, you know, whenever American Christians whine about the way in which our culture persecutes Christianity, I hear the true persecuted church around the world saying, like, hold my Bible. Like, just, come on. Like, for real? Every year, uh, the, the voice of martyrs 
releases their yearly prayer guide. A reminding of the sufferings and persecutions that everyday Christians face by living and doing ministry in hard and hostile contexts. They are denied from owning scripture. They cannot meet in large groups. They're imprisoned and beaten for their faith and pressured by those in their community, even their family, to renounce their faith. And many of them are forced to be displaced. You know, these stories of those who do missions work, they remind us something powerful about the testimony of Christ. Christianity is a faith that asks us the question, what does the gospel require of us when push comes to shove? More plainly, do we really believe in this or not? One story from the Voice of Martyrs reminds me of the power of one Somalian family that was serving in Kenya. Uh, Abdulwali Ahmed was a Somalian pastor. You see, he was converted in college when he started reading his Bible and realizing that eternal peace could not be found in any other name but in Jesus Christ for salvation alone. And all of Somalia ranks in the top three countries that persecute Christians most violently year after year, Abdulwali could not help but tell his students and faculty members that he was now following Christ. He was beaten up. He was hit with a stone in the head, which led to severe bleeding. He had mobs approach his house and threaten his home. From there, he found his way to Kenya, where he met his Nigerian wife, Helen. On their very first date, Abdulwali proclaimed the words, I love the Lord, and I'm ready to die for Christ. Perhaps the, not the best pickup line to lead with if you are dating on your first date, but for anyone of a lesser faith or safe disposition, but this might have been seen as the end of the date for, for those individuals, but for Helen, a godly woman, this was the start of a life serving Christ with a man that she could respect. Helen and Abdulwali began sharing the gospel where they could, proclaiming the gospel to every expat Somalian with hopes that they would return to their home country to transform it. But persecution would continue to surround both of them. On February 7, 2013, his pursuers in Somalia caught wind of Abdulwali's ministry in Kenya. Abdulwali was gunned down as three assassins shot him as he was talking with a pastor in the center of town. It would seem as though, if the story were to end there, that persecution would win the day. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? The gospel always moves forward. Helen, after a long seven-year period of grieving, began to draw closer to God in the midst of unspeakable loss. She moved back to the same city where her husband was martyred. And she began to inquire about her husband to the community. She was surprised that Somali communities all across Kenya and those outside Garissa in Kenya all heard about Abdi's testimony, found inspiration in their own community, and that the persecution of the church found greater resolve and greater steadfastness because of the Abdulwali's influence. Helen, too, would in turn find the courage to go to the very same people that murdered her husband, providing medical supplies, wheelchairs, clothes, and food to other Somalians afflicted by war, bringing the gospel as well. She continues his legacy today in the face of tragedy and hardship advancing the gospel in the most hostile of contexts. You see, the kingdom of God speaks more powerfully in the presence of persecution than it does in prosperity. And just like Peter and John found themselves in the same situation of judgment by the religion that they once held dear in Judaism, 
by the very same judges that condemned Jesus, so too the Christian should not be surprised when the institutions that used to protect us are now turning our guns against us. In other words, Christians should embrace persecution, not power, as the means by which the kingdom of God is spread. More poignantly, if Christians really do believe that salvation is really through Christ alone, then the expectation of persecution for the church should be a sobering but welcome reality for all of us if the kingdom of God is to expand. And this is what leads us to the persecuted church proclaiming Christ, our second point of emphasis here today. While Jesus' accusers and juries stood before Peter and John, they asked him this question. What power allowed them to heal the lame man outside the temple? The attempt was to have Peter and John hang themselves by their words. But Peter instead takes this opportunity to proclaim Christ, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. The rejected Christ has now become the cornerstone, the firm foundation of God's people that no other foundation, no other name could do. So in other words, Peter turns this moment where he has a chance to acquit himself. He could have lied about his faith and what he believed, you know, sort of lived to fight another day. But instead, he doubles down on Jesus and once again lays down his life so that Christ would be proclaimed and lifted up. In other words, the Christian can't help but to let other people to know about this Jesus. They can't help but to point to him. They can't help but to give credit to him. The Christian is motivated by the great desire to make Jesus famous and known in every situation, even in a situation that is less than ideal for a time of evangelism. You know, when you see athletes at the end of a game, that 30-second interview where a sports reporter asking them, how did you win the game? And, you know, that athlete leads with, you know, well, first of all, give glory to God. Uh, you know, we, we, we look at that and we, we know it's sincere because obviously they didn't have to say that. They didn't have to use their platform to say that. Uh, their hearts are clearly filled with such gratitude. But um, if you're anything like me, you know, there's a side of it where, I, where we watch those interviews and said, yeah, of course it's easy to give God the glory. You won the game. All right? You just won the Super Bowl, Nick Foles. All right? Yeah, of course you're going to give the glory to God. All right? So the Christian, we can, come to some, uh, we can become skeptical of such expressions and what, what if the situation was reversed? Uh, in the Netflix documentary, Quarterback, um, which documented the season of three quarterbacks during the 2022 season, uh, we got a picture of a different kind of glory being given to God from an athlete. Uh, Kirk Cousins, uh, the quarterback from the Minnesota Vikings, is, is a part of this documentary. And, and as you watch it, you, you becomes very clear that he's not your typical athlete who wants to, to live lavishly. He dresses up in Cole's dress shirts rather than ornate clothing. He does neurological exercises rather than bulking up in the gym. He screams, you like that, rather than obscenities when a good play is made. Uh, but most importantly, uh, you see a man that no matter what circumstances arise, he uses the opportunity to make Christ known. Uh, when Kirk Cousins in the documentary loses perhaps one of the most important games of his life, denying him the chance to play for the one thing professionally that he has never won, uh, the Super Bowl, uh, we see that he returns home to his family. Sure, dejected professionally, and yet, and this is probably the most poignant moment in the entire documentary, taking the time, as he does most nights, 
to lay next to his children. And instead of mourning the loss of a game, he sings to his children, slightly out of tune, in their beds. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. You see, the Christian can't help. Even in the moments of life that seems like the worst feeling, that seems like you've lost everything, the Christian can't help but to give glory to God. I'm sure you wonder if proclaiming Christ should be the paradigm that Christ uses to grow his kingdom. I'm sure we would ask ourselves, wouldn't other strategies seem more effective? Why just go about this route of proclaiming Jesus? We might question why Jesus would choose this manner to bring people to a saving faith for people surrendering their lives to him. But on the other hand, if you just pull back a limit and, and, and just look not just at Christianity, but every major movement, proclamation is how every major movement begins. Keynote speakers of tech companies, world philosophers, viral speeches, you know, all they need is a proclamation, a platform, and a message. And followers come in believing that there is salvation to be found in whatever it is they're offering. Proclamation, you know, in other words, is a way for all big ideas to be spread, for better or for worse. And we all listen to proclaimers every day. Proclamation is the biggest commodity in the world. So the question is not whether or not proclaiming Christ is the most effective strategy. The question is, is who are you listening to to provide salvation? And perhaps a follow-up question, uh, is that satisfying? Or has it left you wanting? I find it so fascinating that in Christianity, uh, our, our doctrine of God says that we have a God who creates the whole world by his words, speaking. We have a God who speaks into existence the universe and all that is in it, a word that speaks the message of life, a word that became flesh to live among his people. And not only this, but he empowers his creation made in his image to speak and proclaim great things. But you know, the people of God in sin don't always find great things to proclaim. They often find ways to use the voice that God has given them to destroy, to maim, to break down. And so we here as Christians, when we think about proclamation, we're left with two choices about what we speak about. Either the saving news of Christ lifted high, right? the gospel itself and its implications, the goodness of all within, or we speak death to others. For many of us, we can even speak horrific evils that cause the destruction of many. Our tongues can either be a fire upon us by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ, or tongues of fire that burn the whole forest down in James. So the question is, what will you proclaim? Jesus as the life or false salvation. We have to remember that proclaiming Christ is not just for you know, successful people, quarterbacks, musicians, people of prominence. The persecuted church proclaims Christ, and this is our last point today, through plain Christians. The religious leaders of the day in Acts were astonished and shocked at Peter and John because in their own assessment, these were uneducated common men. 
We see here in verse 13 a verse that I'm sure Peter and John would have like redacted from Scripture, but since it's in God's Word, it's forever stamped about the character of who they are. They weren't top of their class in the rabbinic schools. They didn't have the depth of theological language that their opponents would have had memorized and steeped themselves in. They were common, plain Christians, and yet they spoke with an authority and boldness that modeled their martyred rabbi, Jesus. While the religious leaders of their day might have tried to find words to speak, the evidence of the works of Peter and John were quite literally standing right in front of them, this lame man that was now standing. And so these religious leaders needed a break to strategize. They didn't know how to respond to these common men. This is a huge reversal of our expectations in coming to this text. After all, everyone would come to the high priest for wisdom and erudition. Jerusalem and Judea would affirm their prominence, their high level of education, their ability to respond with and debate with vigor. But the humiliation here is that these two nobodies, two blue-collar fishermen who abandoned their rabbi at his death, are now entering into the scene again, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, and they are out preaching these high priests. Now, celebrity culture and the cult of personality is prominent in every generation, but especially in the time of Acts, who you listen to and follow determined the weight of your orthodoxy. Who you said you followed determined your strength as an individual. They would say, I follow this rabbi, I follow that rabbi, and if you followed the best of the best, it meant that you were one of the good ones. So to be bested by a bunch of nobodies, not even ordained rabbis, seemed unnatural. So what do these people in this high position of power do? Well, they do what all people in positions of high power do when confronted with their own weakness and vulnerability. As you see in these verses, they try and silence those underneath them. You see, they couldn't deny the sign. They don't want to spread the message of Jesus, so they decide to shut these disciples up. And this sort of non-disclosure agreement right, that's being made present here between the religious leaders and the Peter of John, they basically are trying to make a bargain with them. Don't speak. Don't teach at all about the name of Jesus. If you're silent about Christ, we'll exonerate you for these supposed crimes that you've committed. You know, it's not a bad strategy for the high priest when you think about it. Right? Stop talking about Jesus his work and his actions, then that will stop the spread of Christianity. Uh, the message needs to be suppressed so that, in their minds, they can thrive. They can live. They can hold on to control. But it neglects the most important consideration that these high priests should have had on the very top of their minds. And that is simply this. Is what Peter and John saying actually true? Is it God's revealed word? And instead, rather than seeking out the Lord in his truth, they sought their own position and status as more worthy than the truth. Whether or not this Jesus was Lord and Messiah is inconsequential to them in holding their position. They wanted their names to continue to mean something over the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, in today's context, uh, we have two very similar levels of authority that act like the high priest in Acts. Uh, you know, uh, one is very actually very historical. See, there was a time in our society where having authority meant that you were the best of the best. Uh, you had all the advanced degrees. 
you had all the accomplishments. The better your degree was, the more accomplished your work, the greater authority you were to speak. So in other words, if you graduated from the right places, with the right grades, performing the right work, you should be given authority. All right, this is a common thought amongst you know, the northern and western parts of this country. Only people that matter are those who are educated. I once had a friend tell me that um, you know, the only place that we really should be doing church is in Boston because that's where all the Yale and Princeton and Harvard graduates are. And they are the real Christians that will be changing the world. Right, the sort of northern elitism. Um, but today, a new kind of authority has emerged that's equal in terms of the high priest authority that's given. Uh, equally performance-based, but grounded on a different level. Uh, there's a reaction today that everyone should have authority. Everyone should speak authoritatively. All you need is a TikTok account in 30 seconds. But what's so interesting is that this level of trust is now given to individuals with no credentials, no authority to speak, untainted by the stain of institutionalism. All right? And so it's the idea that they can speak truly and authentically because they are pure. And so these are the people that we need to listen to. Now, both of these levels of authority might have some strengths to them, but at the end of the day, they're saying exactly the same thing. They say, listen to us. Because we hold the true wisdom. We hold the true doctrine. We hold the true nature of what's really happening in the world. And silence those who disagree with us. Wipe them out from the face of the earth. This is how we find success of authority in our country today. So when we say the phrase plain Christian, proclaiming Christ here, notice I am not appealing to sort of a works-based, high-performance view of authority or sort of, you know, the untainted, you know, grassroots kind of authority. We reject both of those ideas, that you need an advanced post-doctorate degree to proclaim Jesus. Nor are we saying that you can just say anything you want about Jesus because you don't need any appeal to the higher-ups. When I say plain Christians proclaiming Christ, I mean that Peter and John appeal to a different authority, neither high nor low. Peter and John give the word of God the authority to speak. Verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak, in verse 20, of what we have seen and heard. In other words, Peter and John appeal their authority not because they are so accomplished and great or because we don't need authority because we are the voice of the common people. Rather, they appeal to God as their authority because they cannot be silent about Jesus. When we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture, whatever pretense you have placed in your life about who to listen to falls away. Why? Because in the authority of God's Word, you can frame your life. Your experiences and joys that give you the right perspective and integrity in every situation. This is something of a perspective in the authority of God's word. It gives you incredible peace about the world that you live in. You no longer have to move from spiritual guru to spiritual guru searching for happiness in all the wrong places. You find peace in the fact that God is unchanging and his word never fails. And with this, you are able to see and realize that even if you are given a way out to deny God for the sake of safety, like Peter and John here, you would never do it. Why? Because at the end of the day, 
Being a plain Christian is about lifting up Christ and his work. It's not about, you know, this phrase that we often hear in our uh, evangelical culture about doing great things for God as if it, it's something that we are capable of accomplishing. Uh, rather, the plain Christian is doing what God has called us to do because the great work has already been accomplished by his son. It's realizing and giving greater dignity to each and every single one of us here today. Um, our lives are so ordinary, <laughs> right? Uh, it's so common. It seems so mundane. Finding life and excitement and passion in every day seems rather, you know, uh, undesirable. But plain Christians proclaiming Christ, when we are able to do this, it fills us with a passion and excitement because we know that Jesus is being lifted up. It prevents us from jealousy looking at other people's lives and desiring what they have. It prevents us from believing the lie that other people's experiences give life a more meaningful existence. Being a plain Christian gives us a window into the thrill of life that the disciples of Christ live. Every day we cheat death. Why? Because when we proclaim Christ, though we are persecuted, though it doesn't seem like our lives amount to anything. The kingdom of God spreads. So, our challenge here as a church today is not for us to seek the power and the authority of the high priest. It is not to seek out, uh, you know, a, a church strategizing itself into never doing hard things. But instead, my prayer and hope for this church is that we would embrace the sufferings of Christ and persecution that we will proclaim Christ. You don't need to be a fancy pastor or a celebrity whatever to make an impact in proclaiming Christ. All we need is the word of God to go forth into the city and into the world. So let's pray together.